This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another season of Driven by Data, the podcast. Powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We are delighted to bring you season four of Driven by Data, the podcast. And our aim remains exactly the same, to bring you some of the most respected and recognized thought leadership figures from the world of data analytics to share their knowledge, ideas, use cases, and insights across how they've tackled some of the industry's most trending topics and challenges. All that's left to say is sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season four. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tim Carmichael, who is the former Chief Data Officer at Shaloub Group. So, Tim, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, hi, Kyle. Great to be here. Thanks for uh, asking me to join you. No, no problem at all. The pleasure is all ours. Um, and I guess just to put a bit of a disclaimer on this, uh, Tim has recently finished up as the the CDO at, at Chilub Group. Um, and yeah, looking forward to, to, to this conversation, Tim. So I guess where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and I guess journey up until this point in time, uh, if you would be so kind. I'll do my best. Um, I think I would describe myself as a serial chief data officer. I don't know if that's serial offender. We'll find out. Uh, and and a whole career leader in that uh, I'm three decades into my career now and have had leadership roles throughout that time. Uh, and why is that? It's because my background is in the military. I was an officer in the British Army. Uh, I was uh, essentially, therefore, a, a soldier leading teams from 30 strong to 1.2 thousand strong. And Day one, going through the gates at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, where all officers are trained, you see its motto is serve to lead. And for me, therefore, servant leadership has been part of my uh, professional DNA, if you like, over the years. Now, I'm not going to um, loiter over the time I spent in the army, except, wow, what a time. Lucky <laughs> me to have had the thrill of working in that environment and leading motivated, dedicated uh, uh, and underappreciated, I think, uh, people for, for a long time. But I ended up, and this is where it gets relevant, as the Army's first chief data officer, the the uh, chief of the general staff. It's a great title, isn't it? The leader of the Army, the head of the Army, uh, called me in and said, Tim, I want you to be our, our first chief data officer. And he gave me a one-line remit, which I think is really uh, apposite. And I've uh, held to that remit. He said, I want you to enable evidence-based decision-making. Because he said, look, we're really good at judgment-based decision-making and experience-based decision-making, but um, we want to make sure that we leaven that experience and that judgment with cold, hard facts as well, the data, the, the evidence. And I've kept that uh, close um, to the front of my mind whenever I've found myself in a data leadership role, because I think it pretty much talks to... Um, that which is at the heart of um, what a chief data officer, or whatever the title is, um, brings to the party. So that's how I started. Uh, and then I decided I enjoyed that so much, I decided to 
surf that function away from defense and security uh, and to embark on a series of um, roles, whether as an interim or as a permanent, um, as chief analytics officer or chief data officer, or sometimes as a consultant in what I called mini-me mode, where I'm basically being the, uh, the Austin Powers style mini-me for the client who is a chief data officer. Uh, and so I was surfing the function away from the military uh, rather than staying in defense and security. Uh, and uh, the most recent role I ended up with is the one I've just finished at uh, Shalhoub Group as their chief data officer. Nice. Yeah. Well, I think the the kind of one one line, strap line, if you want to call it that, is probably still better than most CDO job descriptions you see out there on <laughs> on LinkedIn today, right? Which obviously, if you follow me on LinkedIn too much, I know you do, you'll see me ranting about um, all too often. Um, but there you go. I, I, I like I that want for to, sure. I want a data scientist with 40 years experience, please. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And a, and a CDO who can, you know, win hearts and minds, do the whole change and transformation piece and um, yeah, build ML models in random forest or something like that as well. Along the yeah, way. what's not to like? There must be tons of those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess just for a bit of context then, just give us a bit of flavour for kind of what you were doing at Shalhoub Group, given that was your most recent role. And then we'll jump into the meat of today's topic, which I'm really excited to talk about, which obviously is servant leadership and I guess the relationship that has with getting value out of data and analytics. Sure. So Shalhoub Group is the Gulf region's leading luxury retailer with um, major initiatives around um, uh, a whole series of products that its uh, customers uh, enjoy and that delight its customers. Uh, but at the heart of that, it's uh, essentially luxury fashion and beauty. And I'm so glad this is an audio podcast so your listeners don't have to see the proof <coughs> of this middle-aged Englishman, uh, fashion and beauty combined in one persona. <laughs> but um, Chaloub has about 15,000. What I love about it is about 15,000 people. There's 110 or so nationalities. Clearly, that changes uh, to a certain degree uh, uh, quite frequently. Uh, and up to 200 brands at any one time. And so it acts as a catalyst for luxury brands, many of which you'll have heard of, um, that to, to give them access into the um, into the market in the Gulf region, headquartered in Dubai, uh, with considerable interest throughout the UAE, Saudi, and many other countries in this area, as you would expect. Uh, and in particular, and so specifically, my role was to be its chief data officer. Actually, I wasn't recruited as the CDO at the beginning. I was recruited by uh, my predecessor, the irrepressible Ryan Den Hearn, which I'm sure you'll you, you'll know and and many of your listeners will know and love. But I sensed that I was being recruited for succession planning purposes because he shortly after that moved on to be the chief e-commerce officer at Shalhoub, which was um, a, a fairly straightforward transition for him to make, given his level of uh, understanding and experience in that space. So my role as CDO, um, which I adopted after a few months, was essentially to, to create that, that sort of magic dust that turned data into value. And for me, it's a fairly straightforward um, proposition here. Uh, the proposition that we're offering to the business or that we've been offering to the business is uh, take some data that's relevant, make sure it's trustworthy data, do clever things with it. You can call that analytics. You could call at the end, you can call that uh, orchestration, ingestion, and deconfliction in its process in terms of en uh, engineering. But essentially, 
generate analytics, use analytics uh, to generate insights from which the business can take decisions that unlock value that would otherwise be just out of the business's reach. And this kind of tantalizingly out of reach uh, challenge for, for value is the challenge that we've been tried to sol solve for. So clearly, functionally, uh, that's been at the heart of my role, but also uh, that goes hand in glove with being a leader. And for me, it's about servant leadership as a specific type of leadership. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, I guess, obviously, so, I mean, I've lived in Dubai uh, previously. So when you talked about, you know, the 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 100 and odd languages or whatever it is that, uh, you know, represented and nationalities, that's always, uh, that's one of the things that I loved about living in the Middle East was just the the variety and the diversity of people you used to, to get to meet. Um, the second point on that, which might prove uh, useful for you, Tim, but so this podcast is ranked, as you know, in kind of Apple and Spotify charts. Um, I was informed that today we are number 10 in the Apple 100 podcast tech charts in the nice. UAE. So there we go. Very, very Congratulations, timely. Kyle. <laughs> no, I'll tell you, you what. No, no, really, that's real credit to you. Uh, and of course, to the quality of your previous guests. We won't vouch for this one. But um, <laughs> um, I'm seriously impressed with that. That uh, that takes dedication and perseverance. No. So uh, what a cool what a cool place to be. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, if 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 we start sliding down the charts in the UAE after this, Tim, we, we know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mayor so, culpa. Yeah. So look, um, let, let's jump into it then. So obviously, I think everyone's uh, at least heard of the notion of servant leadership, but I guess for any of our guests that aren't familiar about, you know, what that actually means as as a kind of concept or a notion, if you will, just talk us through what servant leadership is in in your eyes. Uh, what what it's not is one of many doomed models of poor leadership. So, uh, leadership through fear. I've got to do what that person says because otherwise he or she will land me in trouble. It's not about micromanagement, uh, where the leader is dealing with every minor detail and constantly looking over people's shoulders, nor is it about this um, trap that many leaders can fall into, especially uh, first-time leaders, of that daily search for popularity. It's none of those things. It's not about fear or micromanagement or popularity. It's a fundamental switch of mindset. And, and the most important part of this mindset for me and servant leadership is for me to say, it's not about me. It's not about me saying, look at me, I'm in charge. I'm the guy. It's much more about my people. And so at its heart, servant leadership has selflessness. That's actually quite a hard word to say. Um, but selflessness is all about having confidence, sure, but not ego. Um, and so you switch the focus as a servant leader away from yourself and onto those you have the privilege to lead. And it's about, therefore, doing your best to set your people up for success. So um, it's a really straightforward logic. Your people are more likely to, to succeed if you help them be the best they can be. And to do that, the starting methodology is to play to their strengths and frankly, don't agonize over their weaknesses. Unless those weaknesses are showstoppers, in which case clearly put mitigations in place. But people work better. There's great science behind this. People work better when they're playing to their strengths. They're up to six times more effective if they're doing stuff they know how to do, they love doing, and they're motivated to do. So the role of a certain servant leader is to help their team members grow, whether that's professionally as specialists or in some cases as growing leaders themselves. Now, none of that means servant leadership is a soft touch. The servant leader, any leader, is still accountable. It should be held accountable for the deliverables of their team. Mm 
But fundamentally, servant leadership is about how can I help you to deliver what it is you're meant to deliver, rather than do that because I say so. Very interesting. Uh, there's a million questions floating around in my mind here, Tim. But I guess, um, obviously, that being the the motto, for want of a better phrase, of um, the armed forces by which you served and and led, how much of that shaped your thinking around this? Uh, my military experience, well, to a degree, yes. Um, there is a caricature uh, about um, leadership in the military, and the caricature is an officer in, in the army or the navy or the air force is the person barking orders. Um, shouting, do this, do that, do it because I say so, do it because I'm in charge. Um, and that can work super briefly in very specific circumstances, but it's never a sustainable way to motivate people um, or to get them to do their best. And what you find very quickly if you're tempted to fall into that trap is that people will will vote with their feet. They'll vote with their attention. They'll vote with their motivation and they'll take that elsewhere. Uh, and so it's a it's a road that is a dead end uh, when it's um, when that caricature comes to play. And of course, some people fall into that trap. But the, the the tenor behind servant leadership is that it's not about you. It's not about you telling people what to do. It's about you explaining the the what we're trying to achieve and why. So for me, there's a subset of servant leadership. Um, which is all about helping people understand the context of decisions without micromanaging them to a place that says, do it, do this and do it this way. I'd much rather say, this is what we're trying to achieve. This is kind of outcome we're trying to achieve. This is the why behind it, what the intent is behind it. Now, what do you think is the best way to do that? Here are my thoughts, but I have no monopoly on wisdom. And I think the most important thing that I therefore took away from my military experience is this idea of being consultative with the team and collaborative with the team before you get to a decision. Because if all decisions are taken based only on my knowledge, skills, and experience, then there's no diversity to that. There's no um, different perspectives to that. And therefore, there's no strength in depth uh, in those decisions, typically. And I would much rather um, take away the fact that I've had a chance to consult with the people who are going to be involved in the execution of a decision to check that it works for them and that it's playing for their, uh, for their, to their strengths. So it's about basically making sure you surround yourself with people with the right skill sets and then set them up for success. And then crucially, last lesson, get out of their way. Let them get on with it because they're good at it. That's why you recruited them in the first place. Mm. Yeah, I guess really keen to hear your thoughts on on this then. So I guess we, we hear a lot of debate and conversation around the role of a data leader and i guess you know my my view and perspective on this is that often organizations get that hiring piece very wrong in many circumstances on the basis that they should be looking for a leader and a lot of the characteristics that you've just outlined but yet they that's not how they assess the ability of that person that they bring in right so what do you think in your eyes is the role of the data leader in any given organization I think it's at least twofold, and I'll try and rehearse those two aspects to it. And one, there is, by definition, a level of um, specialist skill set tied up with that. If you are the data leader for an organization, the logic is, is that you'd be the person that would bring a certain level of knowledge and of understanding and of experience that's pertinent to that role. So 
it's slightly less relevant what you know about sales or marketing, except where and how data supports them, for instance. So you do need, I think, a leader in the data space who understands data analytics and increasingly, of course, um, artificial intelligence. But that's not to say that they are uh, a hostage of their specialist skill set, because clearly the whole point about being a leader is it's fundamentally a people endeavor. And so the the dual facet of a data leader's role is to be able to lead, to be able to um, instill, enthuse, and motivate people, instill in them the motivation to deliver what it is they're required to deliver in a, in a way that's most likely to help the organization succeed. Uh, and so I think there's definitely these, these twin facets here. Um, leadership is about people. And therefore, there's got to be the emotional intelligence that goes with that to help understand your people. Um, there's got to be the ability to listen more than you speak. That's one of my many failings. <laughs> um, but also, that needs to be in the context of you're there for a specialist reason. And so, uh, you need to bring some of those skill sets with you. Actually, the way I see my specialist skill set is um, I see my specialist skill set as being the um, the chef d'orchestre, as the French would say, it's not my job to be the expert in any one individual area. It's my job to understand how to cohere the some of the parts um, of all of those areas of expertise that different data people um, bring to the party and cohere them to best effect to deliver the outcomes you're looking to deliver. Uh, that's when I'm looking inwards at my team. And then the other part of leadership, of course, is that leadership by influence when you're dealing uh, with um, business stakeholders who might be less experienced and less understanding of uh, uh, of everything that goes around data. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I agree with everything you've said there. And I think, you know, many organizations fall into the trap of, you know, because they still see data and analytics as that technical topic when they go to recruit a data leader in quotation marks based on you know a senior level title often it can be through the lens of we need an expert in python or something like that you know and, and therefore the actual leadership qualities are never the thing that get assessed and and that can you know cause a whole host of of problems um what's the link or relationship then in your eyes between good leadership and and i guess how that helps to drive this notion of value with or through data analytics for organizations yeah i mean i think at its heart what we're talking about is if you're a good leader then what you have at your disposal are well-led skilled people who are set up to succeed in trusting partnerships with their business counterparts now where, where does trust come from trust Trust comes, for me, is kind of a three-stage good communication, good, good mutual communication. So the ability to uh, speak and explain without lecturing um, and also listen. And that's in both directions, from the business to the business, from the data team to the data team, uh, or data specialists if they're embedded in the business. So good communication is vital because without that communication, you end up with a dialogue of the deaf. And there's an analogy about the data leader being an interpreter. And I think that's pretty well understood. Um, and in a previous life, I was an interpreter, an English-French interpreter. So I know what it feels like to be the person in the room that allows people um, to have a meaningful conversation where otherwise there would be a dialogue of the deaf because they're not talking each other's language. So there's definitely an element there about 
communication. And that communication builds mutual understanding. And that mutual understanding generates trust. And trust is at the heart of how good data leadership gets to value. Because for me, trust is a multiplier. Um, it's a multiplier within the data team and between the data team, data people, uh, and their business stakeholders. And it's about this approach. I, I have a, a phrase I tried to use uh, for many years with my teams. We should be in a no secrets, no surprises culture here. So it's about being trustworthy because you're transparent, because you're clear in what can be achieved and what can't be achieved. Now, if you've generated that trust and you're leading a team well, and they're skilled people, and you've broken down those barriers between uh, the data community and the business community, you, you've got away from them and us. And that's the secret source for me that unlocks value, because what it takes you to is a place where the business has confidence that it has its, at its disposal data specialists can help that can help solve business challenges. It's really cool to solve a data challenge, isn't it? And if you're a data scientist or a data engineer, a deep specialist, it's really cool to solve those problems, but they're not problems you're solving for just for the joy of that. You're solving them because they unlock uh, business challenges. That's the first thing to note. And then, so that's the business perspective. These guys can help solve my problem. That's important. From a data perspective, from the data specialist perspective, you have you end up with specialists who have improved awareness about those business challenges and their requirements and improved motivation to go find its solutions because they understand the why behind the what of the, what they've been asked to achieve. Back to that point I made earlier about explaining the what and the why, but not necessarily the how. And if you get that right, then what you've done, the secret source is willing but not begrudging collaboration between those two communities. So that distinction between communities um, evaporates uh, and you bust the silos of them and us, of business and data, and you have then uh, an accelerator at your disposal. So for me, uh, to answer your question, the art of leadership is to get to the point where it's pretty seamless between the business side of the equation and the enabling data side of the equation. Uh, and there's better mutual understanding than there would be if people are just working in their corners in isolation. Just a quick one. I'm interrupting today's episode to let you know about our tact assessment. Our tact assessment was designed and created to allow you to benchmark yourself against other organizations in your effectiveness in hiring data and analytics talent in today's market. Effectively, we cover three key areas. The internal perception of data analytics with inside your organization. The external perception of your data analytics brand in the current talent landscape. And the third component is your organization's operational effectiveness, which covers things like time to hire, the recruitment process itself, um, remuneration, location, etc., uh, etc., et them three components are effectively what allow you to understand how effective you can be in attracting and retaining the best data and analytics talent. And the best part, we do all of that for free and put it in a nice shiny brochure for you. I don't want to bore you with the details, so if you're interested in learning more, navigate yourself towards www.obitiongroup.com forward slash talent hyphen advisory. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really interesting tim what in your in your eyes then what are the differences between how you lead and lead you know lead in servant leadership 
with your team versus how that maybe differs or, or maybe not, as you might tell me in, in a second, but how that differs with working with stakeholders who are, you know, reside in other functions of the business. Cause I think, you know, typically speaking, you can get a lot of people that are good at leading their team who know their world and know their ecosystem and can speak the language. The other side of the coin, though, being able to influence and build that trust with people that maybe don't come from our world is a lot easier said than done, right? Otherwise, we probably won't be having conversations like <laughs> like this, right? So how does that differ? And I guess, how, what advice would you have for people that maybe, you know, in that journey, um, how, how you tackle the, the kind of two sides of that, that equation? It's a cracking question, Carl. This is why you're in the top 10 podcast, my friend. <laughs> Let me, I can have a attempt at that. You mentioned influence uh, there, and I think that's the key difference. Ultimately, anyone who's a leader who is also a line manager, and that's inevitable if they have a team, has that line management aspect to their leadership role. They're there to grow their team, to set them up for success, to make sure that they can develop as individuals, um, to help them achieve their objectives for the year, to be really clear on prioritization, and all of that good management stuff, which is a subset of leadership, in my view. When dealing with the business, clearly that line management aspect tends to not be in place. So it's much more leading by influence. And for me, if you're going to be an effective leader by influence, then it's about humility, not timidity. So the humility that says, uh, I work in a specialist area and my role is to help unlock success for you. So tell me what your success looks like. Let me hear it in your words. Play back to me what a good outcome looks and feels like. So there's something there that is about recognizing that you are at the service of others in the business. You're an enabler, effectively. That doesn't make you necessarily a junior partner. And that's an easy mistake to make because it's about this collaboration, this seamless collaboration that I spoke about earlier. But <clears throat> your role is to solve business problems, not just to have fun with data. Wouldn't that be easy? So... The humility to say, I don't know every detail of what you're doing. Let's talk about it. Let's break that down. Let's look for what it is you really need to know in order to take those great decisions proactively uh, uh, that unlock value. And whether that's understanding your uh, customers so that you can delight them, whether that's being fully informed of all aspects of your supply chain upstream or your logistics and fulfillment downstream, um, or um, any other aspects of marketing, of sales, of, the, uh, of the, the complete value chain, then it's unpicking the value chain and interpreting that into um, a data uh, aspect and the data bits that will give people visibility to make great decisions. So for me, that's the humility bit. Um, if you're not prepared to be humble and you're not prepared to, what's that phrase, uh, walk a mile in someone else's shoes, then you're probably not going to be listening actively enough. But you can't be timid because it takes courage to say to those very busy business leaders, I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. Or yes, we can get to that, but first we have to solve this foundational stuff. Or I love the idea that you're enthused by artificial intelligence, but can we get some business intelligence into play first? Or however you want to play that. Um, or challenging their priorities. Uh, or helping them understand the complexity. Because my challenge back to the business community has habitually been, 
it's my role, and I accept it with humility, to understand as much as I can possibly understand about your line of business, your area of business, whether that's a cross-cutting uh, piece of functionality around some of those areas I spoke about, customer, marketing, logistics, and so forth, or whether that's a business vertical uh, for these brands or this market. That's my job, to understand that, and then it translate into data terms how we can help solve your challenges. But my challenge, my respectful challenge, that to back to the business is, but you've got to take a pace towards me too and understand some of the realities of the data analytics and, yes, uh, increasingly artificial intelligence challenges that there are because there is no magic wand. And I have to say, uh, and it doesn't matter which organization I was working for, my tolerance evaporates just a little bit when I see people who feel that their, um, their force of personality can change my laws of physics. Because it's just not like that. Now, whether you believe in all the Newtonian laws of physics or whether you think that they're a bit out of date, I don't really mind. The point is, there are some immutable rules and immutable fundamental challenges that have to be solved for. And I think it's behoven on business leaders to understand them too in the context of how does that enable their business rather than just going for the alpha male approach that says, just get it done. Uh, and harking back to my military experience, there's an expression there that says, and it goes something like, um, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. In other words, the really good leaders, yes, of course, they'll understand the tactics of the battle ahead, but they'll also understand whether logistically they can do the job. And in, uh, in retail, it's fairly straightforward. It's no use logistically um, wanting something to be true. If the items aren't there to sell, you can't sell them. Uh, maybe that's where NFTs came from. I don't know. But um, so, so, so too, it is of data. Uh, I think we should all be insisting on the most basic set of literacy on the part of busy business leaders, acknowledged busy, busy business leaders. But the I don't care about all that technical mumbo jumbo line is a bit out of date. Now, what's encouraging here, Kyle, and I'll shut up in a minute, I promise. What's encouraging here is I think generative AI is unlocking that awareness. Now, of course, it brings with it another set of baggage that you've got to deal with about raised expectations. But essentially, what we're seeing for the first time in this last year is a raised awareness of, man, you can do some clever stuff with data. Hmm. So let's do that together. And for the first time, I'm feeling business pull and not just data push. Uh, in many of the areas we're dealing with. So closing off that question, I think it's about humility for influence, but I think that also requires a certain amount of courage to stand up and be counted when that moment is required. Mm, yeah. I mean, I've spoken to so many kind of chief data officer and I guess equivalent um, where they, they're seeing the opportunity to utilize things like generative AI to bring data to the table so to speak right and the, the importance of it in that conversation because i think you know um things like data governance and data quality whilst so important you know they don't really warm warm the cockles all that much right of the people sat no. on the boardroom no. table so um they naturally get drawn to the shiny things and they're worried about missing out and what the competitors might do and, and i guess that's kind of maybe given as an opportunity to bring the importance and the influence that data can have if it's harnessed in the right way for sure um so 100 agree on that i think one thing i wanted to ask you tim then so obviously i think the and and 
this, you know, I'm sure is completely wrong. I, I sometimes wonder whether the the notion of servant leadership can be mistaken for being weak, maybe, or, or something yeah. along those lines, right? And I guess we then get into a conversation that we have practically on a daily basis now about the data analytics team being able to prove their worth and their value. But I guess the whole notion of servant leadership is to serve others and help others to be the stars, right? And you're the enabler. So how do you balance that challenge? Servant is not servile. Let's be really clear. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean it's a a weak or a soft option. Actually, I would argue that servant leadership is, is the tough option. For a, for a leader to take. The easy option is do this because I say so. Mm-hmm. The easy option is uh, micromanagement. But of course, anyone who's ever tried that will quickly recognize that that doesn't scale. So no, servant leader is not about being, um, being servile uh, or sycophantic in any way. Servant leader is you put yourself at the disposition of others in a selfless way where you put aside your own ego and you put aside your own um, more selfish uh, approaches. And you do that deliberately because it, it, it unlocks the handcuffs that people might otherwise have been in your team. Um, and, and, and I think that there's no shortage of examples of bad leadership. You know, there are plenty of common um, pitfalls there in terms of bad leadership. Um, we'll all have lived it. Um, the leader that steals someone else's credit Look at the great work I've done, says the leader to their boss. And it's like, hang on, that wasn't you. Uh, And we've all all seen it. And okay, maybe there can be reinterpreted as collectively celebrating the success of the team, but that's not always the case. Um, The flip side of that is when something goes wrong. That was your fault. You did that wrong. Uh, And that's unhelpful because if someone's done something wrong, then it's much more powerful to say, what can we learn from that? And not have people fear making mistakes because if you have people fearing making mistakes they will they will shrivel and they will hide in a comfort zone and you can kiss goodbye to innovation you can kiss goodbye to new ideas you can kiss goodbye to the event where someone comes and i love these events someone comes and taps me on the shoulder and says hey can i show you this look what i found out i love that but if you rule through fear and they think they're going to get blamed for mistakes no one's ever going to do that they'll stay safe Hmm. What other pitfalls are there of bad leadership? There's quite a few, right? Inconsistency. Uh, I'll decide we're going to go left. Oh, no, no, we're going to go right. No, 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 we're going to go down the middle. Mm, No, we're going to go in reverse gear. Holy cow, give me a direction. (laughs) So for for me, if you've got an inconsistent leader who flip-flops the whole time, how can you trust that person? Because I've already mentioned how trust is the secret source that unlocks this for me. Uh, so, So... Servant leadership is none of those things. Servant leadership is the humility that says, I don't know everything, but I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by people who will probably collectively know a lot more than me. And if I've done my job right, they'll have the freedom and the initiative to go and exercise those skills and play to their strengths. And I know as a matter of scientific fact, I'll get more out of them um, if they play to their strengths. So here's here's a paradox for you. I think the selflessness of servant leadership is actually selfish. It's not altruistic at all because it makes it more likely to succeed. And who doesn't want to succeed? Mm. But you can only succeed if you give people the chance to fail and to learn from that failure. Uh, so, no, there's nothing, um, there's nothing servile about servant leadership. And there's nothing easy about it. 
but it's um it's the medium and long-term route to sustainable success in my view it's not one of the easy seductive paths that might generate a brief period of momentum but is beyond that um, unsustainable mm. i think i know what you're going to say here tim but what about i guess when it comes to management of your team or teams um and i guess you know there's maybe difficult conversations that need to be have, or maybe they're thinking about things in the wrong way that need addressing. So, uh, and just as an example off the top of my head here, right, we speak to people at the kind of practitioner level day in, day out, you know, engineers, analysts, scientists, architects, whatever the case may be. And I guess, in my opinion, there's this view quite wrongly that a lot of these people look for when they're looking for a leader, they think, well, because I'm a technical person, I I want to work for someone that is highly technical and an expert uh, absolute expert in x because they feel that that will progress their career right and i guess we all know that actually what would really help someone's career is working in a team that provides a ton of value to the business because that then because they become more visible they become more valuable etc um how would you handle those kind of um i guess misconceptions if you will where maybe difficult conversations do need to be have under the notion of you know serving yeah, I mean, I think um, what what you say is actually there's some some truth uh, in that first part of people want to be led by people like them, but who are better than them, and that's mentorship. Um, whereas you can lead people without intimate knowledge of their subject matter expertise uh, and help them grow, but that's coaching. Um, and of course, mentorship is where you're you're sharing your experience, your understanding. You're advising. And so that's when you're saying something like, yeah, so when I last created one of these algorithms, uh, the, the challenge that I found was this. And so avoid that pitfall if you can, that kind of thing. That's mentorship, it's advice, and it's offering a solution. Whereas coaching um, is, okay, tell me what you're looking for in this algorithm. What would be the signs of, of a successful algorithm? How can you measure for that? How do you feel this matches against what the business requires? And that doesn't mean I need to be a creator of algorithms to be able to add value to someone who, a data scientist who's trying to um, create an algorithm, or a data engineer who's trying to build a data pipeline, or a data architect who's trying to come up with um, a unique but repeatable design, whatever it might be. Uh, and so my approach is, uh, is a simple one. I need to know enough about their area to understand the challenges they're facing. But it's a fool's errand for me. That's me personally. It's not my strength. I want to play to my strengths. <clears throat> it's a fool's errand for me to try and be the best engineer and architect and data scientist and analyst and data product manager in the team because whew, that'd be pretty exhausting, wouldn't it? Um, and that's not where I can add, add value. So that still allows me the facility to have difficult conversations and challenging conversations with people back to humility, not timidity, but to do that in a way that allows them to, to take accountability for their actions and allows them to understand and come up with their own solutions. Because I think we all know if we've come up with our own solution, we're more likely to see it through to a successful conclusion than being told what to do. Um, and, and I think uh, the heart of that is the leader's ability to recognize where something's going to go wrong or could go wrong and head that off at the past before it gets too far down that road, but also treat failing or not getting something right as a learning opportunity and its positive connotation. 
and then sharing the success as that builds out of that learning uh, and celebrating that success and celebrating other people's success with more vigor than you celebrate your own success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a really fascinating conversation because, as I say, you know, we have a lot of conversations with people that are, you know, part of these teams. And, and you know, we're talking here about servant leadership. And in my eyes, um, servant leadership would be to help those people's work to be used, to be implemented, to be adopted, because that then gives them an element of success in their own right. And, and that they can use moving forward in kind of career development and getting new jobs and all of that type of stuff, right? As opposed to, maybe teaching them how to build the best pipeline or the best model, which you know might help them to upskill, but it's might, you know, probably not as impactful on them and their own success, which I think is a really interesting conversation. But I still think it's important to make sure that those specialists do have someone with a higher level of specialist skill set than they have. 100%. So that person can play the, the specialist mentor role, the yep. guide uh, and the teacher role uh, and help and help those individuals learn and um you'd be unsurprised to hear that um sadly (laughs) half the team in in the data team in shalhoub group are half my age or younger (laughs) that's sobering stuff and therefore unsurprisingly for many of them they're at the beginning of their careers and so it is very much a learning game and if you can set up that learning culture and that learning environment but also gives them a role model they can look up to now that doesn't have to be me and as a as a leader myself, the joy of this is that I don't have to be afraid of the fact that they turn to someone else to improve. I should celebrate yeah. that fact and and give that person the time and space so that they can be that mentor and they can be that advisor and guide and not feel threatened by the fact that I don't necessarily know that detail. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, Tim, conscious of time, and there's a few questions that I really want to kind of uh, make sure that we, we kind of speak about um, before we finish today. You talked there about allowing people to play to their strengths, which um, I guess in large parts will potentially influence things like team structure um, and and how you set up that team to be successful. And there's a whole debate around that, what's right, what's wrong in the context of certain types of organisations. How much of that playing to the strengths is a part of what team structure we're going to build? Huge. Uh, and fundamentally, if you get it right, then you align your structure and your operating model to to strengths. Now, um, you would be really careful that you don't align them to just one person's strengths. Otherwise, you create a single point of failure rather than an ingredient for success. But essentially, if you recognize that any given role needs to have certain strengths, and I love your example of trying to uh, have a data leader that has all of the strengths of all of the people and becomes therefore unachievable. Um, I think what you're doing is you're prioritizing the strengths you need in any given space. And then you're recruiting for those strengths and allowing people to play to them. So uh, right from the point of recruitment um, through the operating model, then sure, you need to play uh, to people's strengths. So don't ask um, necessarily a data engineer to do data science work unless you want them to be a full stack engineer as a specific act, unless you want them to be involved in ML ops, uh, for instance. Um, But equally, don't be afraid of helping people discover and grow new strengths that they didn't have before. Because if we are just um, pigeonholing people of, you're an analyst, this is what analysts do. You're a data product manager, and maybe a relatively junior data product manager, and this is what I expect from you. 
then of course, on the day-to-day, you'll help them play to their strengths, but helping them discover new strengths or develop new strengths is also how you grow your people. Um, And aligning those strengths with the operating model and with the structure is really important. And I'll give you one example. Um, In Shalhoub Group, we developed um, a a split team in terms of its physical location. The heart of the team uh, was and remains in Dubai, but we deliberately built a team around an individual who was a very experienced um, uh, architecture and engineering leader uh, based out of Thailand, because that's where that individual wanted to be based. And at the time, we've and since we've been able to make it work. And as it turned out, that unlocked for us a whole a whole uh, vein of talent that we were able to tap into, uh, which has worked to really good effect. And so we adapted our operating model and our approach deliberately to play to strengths that were already at our disposal. So I think it's quite symbiotic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find it really interesting. And I guess the thing that was playing around in my mind, uh, several conversations I've had over the last few weeks have been around the team structure, you know, so I guess many businesses now operating with the the hub and spoke type model because it provides them almost with a a best of both worlds. Um, But I guess a lot of businesses looking to put their data analytics team into a specific function and that might work best for the business and the success of the data team but actually a lot of those people then deciding to move on because they're they're fearful that they're getting pigeonholed into being a finance data analyst you know or something like that so it's it's really interesting i guess there's a very fine fine balance to strike right there's definitely a balance to be struck, uh, and that's exactly the right word there. And the balance can be guided by the level of maturity of the organization. Um, uh, arguably, uh, organizations go through a place where everything was created by accident, and you find yourself with analysts at different places of the business, and one of them trained in data science, but they ended up doing dashboarding. Um, and you've got in the technology team, for instance, uh, a few people who can also do data engineering, so they're assigned that task, and it all grows out of the ERP, and, uh, and it's kind of this merry anarchy. Uh, and then someone has the, the visionary thought of, no, we need to do this better. Uh, and they'll start then buying in the talent that allows them to do better. And the next natural logical thing to do is to centralize. So from a completely decentralized, rather anarchic model to a much better organized but centralized model so that you get those economies of scale, so that you can do the same things, do them once and exploit them many times. And that should be the watchword of why you would centralize anything so that the, the heart of the work you do is done in one way um, and then resurfaced for different parts of the business uh, where you are you are basically privileging um, standardization. And that standardization, which cr- cuts across business functions so that you're by definition busting silos. And that's why at Chalhu Group, we work very carefully to um, give primacy, if you like, to those cross-cutting business functions around customer, supply chain, logistics, finance, human resources, um, and so forth, rather than just designing data structures for the business verticals or for specific markets. Now, That's the kind of second stage where you build this um, central approach. You make it as efficient as you can. You standardize so that you don't have a million different ways of doing things. But of course, one size rarely does fit all. And so there will be this natural temptation for different parts of the business to say, "Um, no, actually, I want to have my own um, data team or maybe analytics team or 
group of analysts or whatever it might be, because I want to build a recommendation engine in my area. Or we're, we're concentrating, for instance, one of the most uh, uh, obvious areas where you might want to specialize um, is in the e-commerce world before you get to something generally omni-channel, because e-commerce and data are almost indivisible. Uh, one is at the customer-facing end and one is at the enabling end, but there are specialist skill sets associated with e-commerce that need to be catered for. And so there's, there would be a natural tendency there for you to grow out teams. If you have the maturity uh, to do that and the understanding, back to my point about having the understanding in the business and not someone who just wants to grow a team because I want my team and, and anybody who doesn't come with my label, I can't trust them. That's rather lazy thinking and I've seen that happen. Then if you have that maturity that says, no, we are all in this together, but we're focusing on certain areas of the business and we will leverage all those standardized products to best effect and only tailor around the edges where it makes good sense to do so for us. That's probably an 80-20 rule. Then you can do that, but I think then your operating model switches to a framework type approach where the rules of the game are well explained, uh, the rules of the game satisfy the needs of the business and not, a, and not a, a hindrance on the business, and the rules of the game are respected by the business, and providing your framework allows flexibility um, without being a slave to those rules. There's no reason why you can't have this hybrid uh, hub-and-spoke approach. And there's no reason why you can't have mobility of data experts within that area. Typically, you'll find um, architecture and engineering and some of the heavy lifting data science type functions in the center, but you would devolve out to the business people who can be much more steeped into the context of that part of the business. Uh, and the journey at Shalhoub Group was, um, was two thirds of the way down that, uh, down that uh, road to a, to a hybrid approach centralized where it made sense and where people had lower levels of data maturity and willing to devolve with eyes wide open where that was appropriate to do that at a higher end of maturity. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you talked quite heavily throughout, Tim, about the the importance of trust. And I guess from a, you know, through the scope of servant leadership, what is the relationship between, I guess, communication style, something that we often um, see debated, you know, from a, a data analytics perspective and, and how to get that right? Well, your communication style, of course, it, it all depends on the audience, doesn't it? Know your audience, know your master messages, know how to tailor your master messages to that audience. <clears throat> it's probably marketing 101. And communication is just a form of marketing. You're marketing your messages in a way that are most likely to resonate uh, with your audience. So I'd have a different way of communicating to the board than I do with uh, data specialists and different again than I do with some other business leaders or um, managers uh, throughout the business. And that depends on the level of granularity that they can deal with, their bandwidth available to think about that stuff, um, their level of understanding before you even open your mouth. Um, and of course, the only way you can judge that is to spend time with people. Uh, listening to their perspectives, understanding what uh, problems you're trying to solve for, challenging that respectfully in a way that doesn't feel threatening, um, and making sure that depending on your audience, you break down what you're, um, what you're explaining into the simplest possible digestible terms. Quite often when I start a conversation, certainly at the start of, uh, of, a, of a new role, my, I'm, I, 
I challenge myself to have a whole conversation about data without using the word data. Because I, because for some people, it's still, oh, I don't understand that. And I find that threatening. And at least once in my career, I've lost a job because my efforts to explain and educated were actually perceived as efforts to reveal ignorance on the part of my interlocutor. <laughs> and when he's your chief executive, there's only one loser in that equation. So well. uh, I, you learn from that, right? You learn, you learn that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and therefore you've got to find a language set and an approach that works for the person you're trying to communicate with, because communication is two-way, and your style has to change according to, according to your audience. And so that awareness, part of that is emotional intelligence, part of that is good understanding of the business, and part of that also is working your network around the business to make sure you've got a finger on the pulse of what's going on uh, and what will land at a given moment in terms of messaging and the way you explain that. Yeah. Tim? What a awesome conversation! Um, all we've got time for today, we we could talk for hours on this subject, I'm sure. But um, thank you very much for coming on the show, um, and yeah, we wish you all the very best with um, what's to come in the future. Thanks, Carl. I'll keep you posted, and I'll watch with interest as you move from number ten up the charts. <laughs> thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.